Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Several months after the Ontario PC Party won the election in 2018, the Doug Ford government announced during the municipal election that they were going to slash the number of City of Toronto councillors from 47 to just 25. This announcement took the city completely by surprise and yielded fierce resistance by city politicians and concerned citizens. In the end, however, the province got what it wanted and the city was forced to follow the new rules. That highly contentious event raised a lot of questions about the current state of municipal governance in Ontario and the municipality's ability for self-determination. So today we're going to explore the complexities and challenges of municipal governance in Ontario, how it compares with that of the United States, and some new ideas being raised to give cities, particularly the City of Toronto, the opportunity for greater autonomy. Joining me today is Professor Zach Taylor, an assistant professor of political science and director of the Centre for Urban Policy and Local Governance at the University of Western Ontario. Professor Taylor is in Toronto these past couple of days, May 23rd and 24th, to promote his new book entitled Shaping the Metropolis, Institutions and Urbanization in the United States and Canada. So Zach, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we begin, I just I want to make a shout out to the, the great folks at the Ontario Professional Planners Institute, or OPPI for short, which I'm also a member. And they've offered to promote this podcast through their social media platforms. So if you're one of the 4,000 OPPI members who's just learning about this podcast, I hope you like it and find it informative. And please give it a rating and provide your feedback. Okay, so Zach, um, you're in Toronto yesterday and today to promote your book. Uh, why don't you tell, tell the listeners what it's about and who it's intended for? Sure. I mean, it's great to be back uh, in Toronto, a, a place where I lived in, you know, for, for 15 years uh, and, and some years before that as well with, a, with an interruption. Um, the book is, asks a very basic question, which is, why is urban governance different in Canada than in the United States? Um, why do we have strong provinces and less of a federal presence? Why in the U.S. do we have strong states and, uh, and, or weak states and, and a stronger federal presence? Mm-hmm. Right? Why, why is that? And, and along with that, why is there a kind of different legal architecture around uh, local government in, in the United States? Uh, why does local government seem to operate with greater legal autonomy and what does that mean what are the implications of all this and historically where did all this come from <laughs> right so that's what that's what i set out to do in this book um the book uh has a, a national level comparison that reaches back to the 19th century and then i jump down into four case studies i, I compare toronto with minneapolis st paul i compare hmm. vancouver to portland oregon all four places uh, that have been seen as best-case scenarios of, of progressive metropolitan governance and urban planning at various points in their post-war history. So trying to figure out uh, how, how things ended up the way they did was, was, uh, was the direction that I was uh, trying to pursue here. And what, what compelled you to write the book? Um, 
in some ways, it's a very personal story. Uh, my parents were Americans who came to Canada and had me before I was born. I've been traveling back and forth across the the 49th parallel uh, for for most of my life, visiting relatives, and 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 so this is this is pretty deeply baked into into my life experience and, and something I really needed to explore. So, what's the um, the main conclusion that you want your your readers to walk away with? Uh, there's, there's a number of moving parts to the okay. to the argument. Um, I, I think often we think, well, you know, the reason why the U.S. is the way it is 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 because of racial conflict, right? That's why we have a metropolitan governance failure in the United States, where you have central cities that are very often predominantly uh, black and less well off, uh, and and you have these white suburbs, and and the whole history of a failure to develop metropolitan policies comes comes from that. Um, I'm kind of adding a different layer or looking at it from a different perspective, which is to to try to figure out why states have, weren't more involved at an earlier stage uh, before the racial transformation of hmm. the inner city occurred. Uh, so really, you know, back to the 19th century, back to the, the early 20th century, because if they had installed uh, a way of governing cities at the state level, things would have turned out very differently. And in fact, they would have turned out more like they have in Canada. Hmm. Okay, well, then we could probably draw from maybe examples from your book if you want. But, you know, when I think of um, the difference between American and Canadian governance, the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, is the mayoral voting power. And, and so we're familiar here in Ontario, maybe it's the same throughout the rest of the country, where the mayor is just one vote. I guess for a mayor uh, to get what they want, they have to constantly lobby or uh, work with the other councillors to support their vision. And when I think about the American system, the mayors have a little bit more power. So maybe you can explain the difference between the two and what are the pros and cons between them. Yeah, strong mayor, weak mayor is not something I directly address in, in the book, sure. but I'm happy to talk about it. I think it would be a misconception to say that there is an American system. Um, three quarters of American municipalities uh, don't have strong mayors, right? Okay. They, they have a, 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 a kind of councillor manager system that's very similar to, to what we see in Ontario. I see. Um, a handful of very large and high-profile cities have strong mayors. Um, a strong mayor is a mayor who, uh, there are different formats, but very often they don't sit on the council, right? They're like a president that's separate from the legislature, right? Hmm. So the the council passes bylaws and, and the strong mayor, like a president, can veto, right? And they, that veto can be overridden and that sort of thing. So it replicates the way that uh, uh, you know state and federal politics works, right? With a, with a separation of an executive and a, and a legislature. If we look at New York City, for example, right? The the civic bureaucracy, the public service reports to the mayor, not to the council. Mm. The mayor initiates the budget, not the council, mm-hmm. right? So the council is reduced to more of an advisory role. Um, we uh, have seen, especially in the UK, a desire to mimic this model, right? So the, the, uh, the creation of the uh, Greater London Authority um, really tried to create an American strong mayor system in the British context where, um, you know, Mayor Khan right now is, is basically within the things under his control. He's, he's a benevolent dictator. 
right? And and the uh, the the uh, assembly, the London Assembly, functions as a kind of uh, you know an advisory body uh, mm-hmm. wrapped around him. Um, there are great uh, benefits to the benevolent dictator model, right? Those benefits are things can happen very quickly. Sure. Um, it also means bad things can happen mm-hmm. very quickly, right? Uh, you know, over the past 25 years in Toronto, we've seen strong mayor talk emerge from time to time. People say, well, we can't get anything done. We need to have a strong mayor. Um, whenever a mayor of the other persuasion gets into power, that talk disappears, right? And I think that what that reveals is that people only want a strong mayor when that strong mayor will do what they will, will enact their preferences, yeah. if you want to put it that way. Yeah. So I think uh, we've a lot of smart moves were made in uh, 2006 um, in tandem with the City of Toronto Act, right? A new committee system was created. The executive committee system was created. The mayor has agenda-setting power. Um, you know, I'd invite your listeners to look at um, uh, the uh, local government task force that uh, uh, U of T School of Public Policy put together a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um uh, if you if you go to U of T's uh, uh, Urban Policy Lab, you can find that. Um, I participated in that task force, and we came up with with a number of easily enacted tweaks that would um, kind of enhance the mayor's agenda setting power without taking away checks on arbitrary action. Mm-hmm. Right, like uh, a mayor's special role in 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 setting um, you know a mandate priorities right at the outset for example an annual state of the city address more of a uh, control over the budget process Mm -hmm. right so has it always been this way where the mayor is just one vote always Uh, always that's just the canadian system goes all the way back to the the origin of our municipal system and in the United States, you said three quarters are similar, um, but some of these very large urban mm-hmm. areas have a different approach. How long has that been the case? Is that always always operated that way? It goes back to the end of the 19th century, where you had uh, the urban reform movement, um, where there was a desire to, to try to manage the politics, the party politics of, of local government, you know, where you, famously in New York, you had Tammany Hall. Uh, where the mayor ran a patronage machine, basically, out of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and the desire was to, to reform those. Um, so what you see in, in the western half of the newer half of the United States is, is that the reform movement led to uh, local governments that look more like ours, right? And in the east, we still have some unreformed uh, governments, right, that I have see. this very strong, uh, strong executive. I, I mean, I just, I, you know, when I think about uh, the strong mayor um, approach, um, one city that comes to mind is, is Chicago, where you had the uh, mayor daily. Uh, I think that's two mayor daily. Two mayor dailies, right? Um, and they seem to to have been able to get a lot of things done. I guess through either through their influence, their persuasion, or their power. And that's where um, our city may be looking to Chicago with some envy. Um, we do not want to be Chicago. Okay. Um, Chicago has problems that we never want to have. Declining population, uh, you know, major racial conflict, mm-hmm. um, highly uh, uh, divided neighborhoods by race, you know, where there's, 
you know, you know, all white segments of the city, all black segments of the city, uh, emerging Hispanic areas. Um, the the Democratic Party machine in Chicago, you know, has has uh, functioned by trying to assemble um, some combination of white, black, and Hispanic voters. It's a it's it's a messy system with a lot of a lot of patronage, borderline uh, corruption, and so on. Um, you know, the there was one time when like half the aldermen had some were had some kind of charge against them uh, in a, in a criminal mm-hmm. in criminal proceedings. And but so that on. wouldn't would that make uh, a difference as to whether you had a strong mayor or, or uh, a weak mayor system? Um, I mean, the, because they have such deep social and economic problems, uh, having a strong mayor has uh, perhaps enabled certain kinds of action to occur, right? Um, you know, the, the one thing I remember 10, 15 years ago in Toronto that people were looking at Chicago about was, well, you know, the mayor of Chicago got rid of their downtown airport because he brought in the bulldozers and they just started digging it up. And right. he didn't ask anybody's permission. Right. You know, why can't David Miller do that? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's fine that he did that if you like that he did that. You know, what if what if the bulldozers knocked down something else, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, you know, Emmanuel declined to run again because uh, even with all of his, his authority, uh, uh, the problems piled up and he had to wear it, right? The, the bungled reform of the school system um, and so on. You know, the municipality had taken over the school system mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago, public schools. So... I don't think we want to be Chicago. Okay, well, that, I'm know. sure for a Toronto listeners, yeah. that that's um, that's good to hear because I think for people at least who who travel to Chicago uh, as a tourist at least and and see what they see, um, there's there's a lot to admire, but maybe they don't see what lies beneath. Well, um, if, if if you're hanging out in the Loop and in yeah. the near north, yeah. it's a pretty nice place. Yeah, right. Um, I want to just now get into the. I guess the the difference between provincial versus U.S. state influence over local authority. Uh, I mentioned in my intro uh, that when Doug Ford came to power, one of the first things he did was push to reduce the size of Toronto City Council from 47 council members to just 25. And he was able to do that because Ontario municipalities, as they say, are creatures of the province. Um, First, let me ask, why is our legislation set up this way, where local uh, municipal councils have very little ability to determine the structure and governance governance of their cities. Well, they have more and more, but I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, uh, municipalities are public corporations. In the English-speaking British-descended legal tradition, uh, this is true throughout all of those places, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, um, Ireland. Uh, UK, uh, it's it's uh, this is just how it works, right? There is no independent constitutional existence of local government. Local governments are public cor- public corporations that are authorized by provincial legislation. This is also true in the United States. Okay. Um, there, I'll talk about home rule in a minute, but uh, uh, this is generally the way things work. Um, around the world, except in special cases like Singapore, for example, which is its own country, right? Uh, uh, Berlin, which for historical reasons is its own 
state, its own land within, within Germany. Um, so there are examples of these kinds of city provinces or city states, but they, they are the exception rather than the rule. Uh, local governments just about everywhere are, are creatures of their provinces, states, or national governments and unitary states. Mm-hmm. Now, the wrinkle in the U.S. is they have this thing called home rule, and uh, we need to be clear about what that is. So one of the things that they have in the U.S. that we don't have in Canada is states have their own constitutions, their own written constitutions. And those can be amended by referendum or by a constitutional convention. Uh, We don't have that, Mm. right? The province's constitutional existence is largely in the the Canada Act, the Constitution Act, right? Uh, Along with some other things like you know, Newfoundland's terms of union with Canada are, in a sense, Newfoundland's constitution, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But Ontario doesn't have uh, its own standalone constitution. It's just not the way we we set the the country up. I see. And even if we did, uh, we don't have a mechanism for independently amending it, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't have citizens band together, collect enough citizens, and make something happen. So, okay. So what is home rule? Home rule uh, emerged in, in the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century in the U.S. because there was a lot of uh, state manipulation of local government for partisan gain. Mm-hmm. Um, state legislators would, uh, they didn't want to, uh, you know, create government agencies at the state level and create expenditures at the state level. So they use their legislative power to uh, invent offices for their friends in local governments. Hmm. Stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? They would, uh, they would intervene arbitrarily all the time mm-hmm. for, for partisan reasons uh, to install their friends and, and that kind of thing. Um, the good government reformers of the day banded together, and part of the reform package was to amend state constitutions to create a firewall between state and local government, a partial firewall. What that usually the form that this takes is that state legislatures cannot pass legislation, uh, or they're prohibited from passing state legislation that affects any single municipality. I see. So, yeah. in the case of say the city of Toronto, mm-hmm. where um, Doug Ford and his government wanted yep. to reduce, could that have happened in in the United States? Not without. Um, a lot of uh, uh, circuitous legal action, right? Uh, In in most states, that would be effectively impossible. Um, So home home rule uh, is, I mean, states still have, you know, a wide scope of authority over local government, but they don't act on it mostly, in part because home rule, in addition to being a legal thing, uh, has kind of been internalized as an everyday operating ideology, right? Mm-hmm. That that uh, people presume that the state shouldn't do such things, mm-hmm. and that norm is less developed in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I I, I uh, spoke about last night um, at the at the library where I where I gave a talk. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Runnymede, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. was um, you know pr- provincial involvement in local affairs has been as good as often good as bad in Ontario and in fact a lot of the unilateral actions of the province in in past times have have served us very well um, the provincial government in the 19th century early 20th century 
you know, actively regulated the creation of new municipalities in a way that, that was never pursued in any American state. That's why you go to Cleveland or Pittsburgh and there's like three or 400 municipalities in a metropolitan area of two and a half million people, hmm. right? It's just a, a it patch, it's a patchwork of, of micro municipalities that have no capability to solve all their own problems despite their, their legal autonomy. Legal autonomy without capacity is worthless, mm -hmm. right? That's the American story, right? Mm. They trumpet their legal autonomy, local, local self-determination, but, uh, but the municipalities are vastly underpowered mm. compared to ours, where they have public services, uh, they have um, a lot of tools, right? And so the, the, that's one aspect of what the province has done for us that I don't think we fully appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, they created uh, across the country various provinces, you know, during the 10s, 20s, 30s, uh, 1910s, 20s, 30s. They all created ministries of municipal affairs. Mm -hmm. There is no state has a department of municipal affairs. Oh, interesting. Right? So they created, provinces created a, a way of kind of managing the system as a system. Mm -hmm. And that's been really good for us, right? Uh, the Planning Act, 1946, was two generations ahead of anything that was produced in the United States. Mm -hmm. right? The Conservation Authorities Act, 1947, uh, in Ontario, um, was two generations ahead of, of similar watershed management bodies in the U.S. These things have served us incredibly well. Um, the creation of Metro Toronto, right? regionalization in the 60s and 70s, disruptive, but it's... It was extraordinarily successful, mm -hmm. right? Creating a wall-to-wall -wall, uh, transportation system in the 50s and 60s, converting wells and septic tanks, you know, with risk of disease into a lake-based uh, water and sewer system. This, this was good stuff, and it was a generation ahead of, of um, you know, the, 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 the way less efficient and more disjointed actions in many American cities. So we, we should be thankful mm. that we have this, this, uh, this history of, of, of provincial engagement. Now, why has it moved to dis dysfunction? That's, that's, I think, the real question, right, is why did good things seem to happen more often than not in the past, and now we seem to have arbitrary yeah. actions? Um, and what I talk about in the book is one of the big things that's changed that I don't think we uh, recognize the influence of is we had single-party dominance in most of the large urbanizing provinces from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, in some provinces into the 80s. You know, the, the progressive conservative party in Ontario right, they were governed for 40 four years, years sure. right? Yeah. Social credit in B.C. governed with one interruption for, for 45 years. Mm -hmm. um, Alberta had 25 years of social credit and then 40 years of, of the conservatives. Um, they, these, these long terms of unchallenged single party dominance uh, gave governments the ability to think systemically and long term. Were all their decisions good? No, we may, from our current vantage point, think that some things were mistakes, right? But they were thinking big in an environment of sustained economic growth in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. Uh, and we got a lot of positive things out, uh, out of that that we're still coasting on, mm -hmm. right? Once we get into the 70s, things become way more contentious. 
consensual politics breaks down, things become polarized. The time horizon moves to the next election, not 20 years, right? And uh, and that that widening of the polarization has just expands decade over decade over decade. Um, so we are now in a position where governments are not thinking long term because they have no incentive to do so. I don't even think we can blame them for that, right? They're they're acting in 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 ways that make sense to the rationality that they work in. Mm-hmm. Um, a rationality of winner takes all. Got to win the next election. Got to shore up my base and punish my opponents. Um, the party bases are geographically specialized now, right? We have a country and a city party, whereas. You know, the conservative party of Leslie Frost and John Robarts and, and Bill Davis drew support from all parts of the province. So uh, the municipalities are at the mercy yeah. of that, and they're they're subject to the, that kind of shift. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, I want to get into this next idea that um, that's being circulated, and this is the notion of the charter city movement. And this is a way to kind of... Um, maybe push back on this this level of control that the province has on on self determination for municipalities. This is a charity city movement for the city of Toronto, uh, of which former city mayor John Sewell is is part of. Um, can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. How it's uh, what they're proposing and whether you think that that could work? People have been talking about this for twenty years. Okay, um, and I think that there's actually a profound misunderstanding of what a charter is. Um, in the American context, a city charter is a special law passed by the state that applies to a single municipality. So instead of having a general municipal act, you have each municipality chartered through its own piece of legislation. Um, what that does is it inhibits the management of the system, as I talked about it earlier. One of the things that happened in Ontario uh, early on is that there was kind of a political commitment to having a general municipal act rather than than having charters like in in many American states where there's just a profusion of highly uneven municipal legislation so the charter uh, issue emerged starting in the 90s in in Canada because the big cities were getting way bigger and way more sophisticated than all the small cities, right? The urban-rural divide had had expanded to the point where it's a very legitimate case to be made that big cities need to have different powers and rules than small cities or rural townships and so on. So the outcome of that is uh, the City of Toronto Act, a special act that authorizes all the authority that is uh, exercised by the City of Toronto. We already have the charter. That's what a charter is. Mm. Now, people talk about city charters as if they can somehow protect you from the province. And what that is, is that's a conflation of home rule with the idea of a charter. Mm. We already have a charter. It could not protect us from the province because there's no way that it could. There's no constitutional way that you could create a charter that could protect you from the province unless you do things that I think are practically and politically infeasible, like opening up the national constitution and creating new mechanisms for a protected sphere of local self-government. Isn't that what they're proposing? Well, good luck to them mm-hmm. because uh, all of us who uh, are old enough to remember the constitution wars mm-hmm. of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s 
with Quebec, indigenous peoples, the West. Um, that, that consumed all kinds of national energy for 40 years. And one of the casualties of that uh, federal-provincial relations frame with indigenous peoples brought into it later was that we never talked about cities and urbanization. So we could, we could have a whole new, you know, Meech Lake, Charlottetown type process, which could be a decade-long distraction from all kinds of pressing concerns. Uh, and still end up with nothing like we did last time. Hmm. So you think the charter city movement may be a futile uh, endeavor? Uh, I think it's it's a. Uh, I I I think it's pointless. <laughs> basically, okay. I don't think it it can take us uh, where we want to go. I think the problem is not institutional, right? We seem to be reaching towards institutional solutions, change the laws, change the structures of local governments. Um, and that's a costly way to go, uh, and it's difficult. Um, I think the, the, the real issue is ultimately political, right? We have a polarized province with a city. Well, we really have three city parties and one country party. <laughs> <laughs> and if the city party wants to, uh, wants to govern, it needs to figure out how to build a big enough coalition to govern. And that slipped away over the past... 10 years. Hmm. I want to, I, um, this is a bit of a departure and this probably is the last question we have time for, uh, cause I know you have a train to catch. Um, but I wanted to get your, your thoughts on, um, uh, populism and the divide between the values of downtown urban core voters and suburban and, and rural voters. Um, you know, with Doug Ford's election win last year, there was fairly stark contrast between the urban core vote and the suburban rural vote. The majority of the urban voters went against Doug Ford, whereas the majority of suburban and rural votes supported Doug Ford. Do you, ha- do you believe that that had to do with Doug Ford's populist style, or was his form of populism irrelevant in how the votes were cast? Uh, I think there's two two analyses that are out there, right? One is that the liberals' time had run out and people would have voted conservative no matter what. Right. Uh, and I think that's probably true in many parts of the province, right? Now that I live outside of the GTA... Um, in London, the, right? In London, mm-hmm. yeah. People, people didn't know Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. They hadn't observed the Rob and Doug experience up close as as I did when I was uh, still still living here um, so he was just the leader of the conservative party who said things that seemed to make more sense mm-hmm. um, and the liberals were seen as being a spent force that had overreached you know so that's that's one piece of it um, I also think that there is a certain component of the electorate that responded to his actual populist message right um, you know on election day I, I took my mother to a medical appointment. I was sitting in the waiting room while she was being looked at. And the TV was on and and it was, uh, you know, Doug Ford was on the screen. And there were a couple old guys across from me in the waiting room. And the one guy just kept saying over and over again, he'll show him, he'll show him, he'll show him. And, you know, what he meant was he'll show Toronto, Mm. right? And the thing is, the grievances are not entirely misplaced. If you look back uh, over the past 30 years, 
And decade over decade, an increasing share of population growth has gone to the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. An increasing share of employment growth has gone to the greater in Toronto Hamilton area. Virtually all immigrants have gone to the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. Between 2006 and 2016, 82% of net jobs created in the province of Ontario occurred in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, and almost all the rest happened in Ottawa and Waterloo region. So there is a not unfounded belief that uh, the Toronto metropolis is detaching from the province and sucking the marrow out mm-hmm. of the rest of the province. Right, and yeah. and and so so like I can see where that that feeling comes from. Mm-hmm. I I can appreciate it now. Uh, and on a smaller scale, you know, I think the the kind of post-war less advantaged zone of the city of Toronto um, feels the same way about the core. You That's know? what I wanted to get into yeah. because I, I asked this question of Sean Hurdle, who was on mm-hmm. uh, a previous episode. We talked about the sur- suburbs, and you know, again, I I was really curious about the um, uh, the voter uh, response in the election, where mm-hmm. just the urban areas, the urban core areas of either Toronto or London or Hamilton, Ottawa, um, they all voted predominantly. Um, NDP. I mean, it looks the Liberals were kind of on their way out, so they were either they were every every urban place with a university, college, or hospital went New Democrat. Right, and the suburban areas, and I don't want to get into the rural areas or Northern Ontario, but the suburban areas they they voted predominantly blue. Um, but I'm still scratching my head because I still see so many of the issues um, that people have to think about being um, healthcare. Uh, public transit, transportation, education, uh, and the like. I mean, they, these are sort of universal uh, levels of importance that regardless of you where you live, this is important stuff. Why did people vote so differently? I think we're in, you know, part of it is the housing piece, right? The cost of, of living um, and how variable it is across space. So, you know, People of a certain generation in, in the city of Toronto, in, in the old city of Toronto zone, who, who bought their property early, especially if they bought it during the slump of the late 80s, early 90s, right, when the property market kind of collapsed, um, they got to get in and ride it up. Mm-hmm. Everyone who came afterwards is, is basically screwed, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, my old house in Toronto doubled in value in in less than a decade. I mean, it was, and there's nothing special about that house, you know, uh, beyond its location. So I think there's very real concerns and grievances that people just feel like they're, they're being priced out, um, of, of life in this, in this region. Sure. Uh, uh, so the pocketbook dimension is, is not to be, um, you know, not to be discounted when you when you think of the cost of holding a mortgage or renting an apartment in this city, uh, when and compare that to the to the median income, right? It 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 doesn't add up. You know, it really doesn't add up. But okay, so you um, so that's one piece. Yeah, right. another piece I think is a a lifestyle piece, right? Uh, if you look at probably two thirds of the elections since amalgamation, so. 97, 2000, um, 2006, 2010, uh, the election map was very clear. You, you had a two-way race between a suburban candidate and a downtown-based candidate, and 
uh, those two zones pretty much broke on the division between inner old city of Toronto, York, East York. Or old and city of Hamilton or old city of yeah, London. Yeah, if you, is it the same? Yeah, you can yeah. you can find these things. Okay. That's 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 kind of the dominant split that we, we see. But other maps are possible, right? We see in two thousand three and uh, uh, twenty fourteen um, yeah, and I should say 2018 fits into that, right? Mm-hmm. The Keysmat map was identical to to earlier earlier maps, um, but the the you know 2003 2014 we saw things split in a very interesting way, right? The core was still the core, right? Uh, you know, Miller built his support out of the core, um, uh, and uh, Chow Chow's support was highly geographically concentrated, but the suburbs split. The well-off suburbs went one way, and the less well-off suburbs went the other way, right? Uh, and so that's the Tory-Doug Ford 2014 division right that there. That was the municipal election. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking municipal. Okay, but yeah. in the provincial, the last provincial election, it's as if all of the mm-hmm. suburbs went blue. Yeah, I just think, the, so I think that's that's an economic kind of argument. Okay. I, think, I think it comes down to that that, um, you know, this guy wants to get back to basics, and that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And that's how, yeah. Pete, you're saying that's how people think in the, in the suburban areas, whereas in the urban, the core areas, they had other other values in mind. Uh, if, if you're a homeowner or a car commuter, and you think of, of how much of your money mm-hmm. is tied up in house debt— Right and tied up in hours of commute per day, um, your material interests are pretty clear, and I don't think those people can be blamed for having those material interests. Right, um, you know, downtown people who can travel by other means have other options. Uh, many of whom are tenants, um, many of whom are younger. They're at a different phase of life. Right, like the actual age, median age of the population differs in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, they have different material interests, right? And and uh, uh, you know, and interests in in it's a different lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? So in it's, it's sort of two different lifestyle worlds at work there. Um, but the the Doug Ford twenty fourteen mayoral map is not the same as the provincial twenty eighteen Doug Ford conservative map. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Doug Ford provincially picked up the well-off places that voted for John Tory at the mayoral level in, in 2014. So it was a different coalition hmm. of neighborhoods. Well, it's, it's, um, it's so fascinating. I think now, I, I, I'm sure academically it's very fascinating to observe uh, how people are voting, the challenges with municipal governance, how it compares with that of the United States, counting our blessings that we may not be structured the same way as they are in, in the United States. This has been really informative. Uh, I see a copy of your book. It's a it's a timely topic, and I'm sure it'll do well. Thanks for coming in to, to oh, chat. Thanks for having me. Okay, terrific.